Our scripture lesson today comes from John chapter 12. I invite you to remain standing as we share in God's good word together. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, Clinton Kelly, are y'all ready to see your fixer-upper? We're ready. ready. Come on. Oh my gosh. Rachel and Andrew, are y'all ready to see your fixer upper? Yes. yes. Okay. Wow. wow. <laughs> are you guys ready to see your fixer upper? Let's go. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Is this the same house? Is this the same house? Is this the same you? When, when people look at all of our confirmands, maybe look into your life tomorrow, will they say, is that the same person? Or is it just the same person? Just with a little religiosity sprinkled on them. We have been looking at the life and teaching of Jesus from Ash Wednesday and the wedding at Cana of Galilee all the way through up to today where Jesus is about to move into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. Uh, we've been with Jesus um, as he was baptized, as he taught, as he fed, as he healed as he turned over the tables in the temple. And finally, we come to this day when we realize who Jesus really is. He's going to show the world who he really is. You're going to like this. This week, it's called The Reveal. Get it? The Reveal? Okay. So, that's it's the only PowerPoint trick we have. So, The Reveal. So today, we're going to look at who Jesus really is and how he reveals himself. And if Jesus reveals himself, even when it's difficult then what might that say to you and me about us being commanded, compelled, empowered to reveal who we are in Christ Jesus wherever we go, even if it's difficult? So as a quick catcher-upper, we know that we have a lot of guests here. So over the last five weeks, this is our sixth week and final week of this series. Week one is this, and I want you all to know this, that a transformed life is available to you. Will you say that with me? A transformed life is available to you. And for many of us who've been Christians for a very long time, sometimes we begin to doubt this. When, when certain things in our life remain the same, we wonder, is a transformed life really, is, ava- is it really available? Can it really help it happen? Can it still really happen? Are the best days of my life still ahead of me? Really? Can, can this be the case? And with all that I am, I want to say yes. Yes, yes, it can. But it may cost you more than you think. It may take longer than you think. And, and it will require things of us that most of us are not interested in. When we look at Jesus' life and the temptation in the wilderness, we find that a transformed life requires suffering, rejection, and death. Say those with me. Suffering, rejection, and death. Most people will pass on those. Right? But if you're going to do anything of import with your life, if you're going to look back on your life and say, these are the things where this really happened, this was really great, I, I, I completed a degree, or I had a child, or I, I, I took a walk through cancer, or whatever it may be, it's going to require suffering. It's going to require pain in your life. It's going to require rejection from certain people at certain times for you to move forward in the life that God has for you. And it will require death of certain things in your life. It just is the case. And a transformed life takes us outside the walls of the church. When Jesus turned over the temple uh, tables of the money changer, he wasn't just turning over their tables. He was turning over the entire religious system of the world. 
That for thousands of years they understood God to be located in the temple in one place or the tabernacle. And Jesus says, no, I in my temple, in my body, God resides. So wherever Jesus is, God is. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says, all throughout the Gospels. And so Jesus moves the presence of God out of the temple. It's in the temple if Jesus is in the temple, but it's also outside the temple if Jesus is outside the temple. And because of the spirit that comes in the book Acts chapter 2, it's in every person now. So that when we send you out, we send you out to be light for the very presence of God to be alive in you wherever you go all around the world. And in this very day, we have two of our members, one preaching in Selchuk, Turkey, um, out of our church about Palm Sunday. We, we have another that stopped by in the early service from South Korea. I mean, this is a global church, a global movement where God's light, wherever it is, God reigns. And it takes us outside the walls of the church. And, and in John 3, 16, it says, God so loved the, what, world, the cosmos, those that hated Jesus, right? Not religious followers, but even those who hated him. It includes everyone. And he says, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Now, the trick is eternal life is largely misunderstood in the West. Eternal life is life in the unending presence of God. That's what eternal life is. It was here before you were born. It's available to you right now today, and it will last forever. And it's available to everyone. To everyone that you love, to everyone that you hate, to everyone that you will ever meet. Eternal life, life in the unending presence of God is available. It is. The question is, do you want it? Will you receive it in its fullness? Because Jesus doesn't offer you an 80-20 rule. He doesn't. It's either you're all in or you're not in. That's how he offers it. But it's available to you and to everyone. And then last week we looked at God will honor and reward anyone who does what? Serves Jesus. Anyone. Anyone. Those who know him well, those who are just getting to know him, maybe even those who don't know him at all, but they're still serving him without knowing his name. If you're serving Jesus, if you're doing the things Jesus teaches, God will honor and reward you. We don't know when, we don't know how. It might be this afternoon, it might be after you die. We don't know. But we do know, and God promises, Jesus promises, that God will reward and honor anyone who serves Jesus. So then we come to this this week, the last week of Jesus' life. And the context is this, that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for Passover. Passover is uh, the huge celebration of the Jewish people when God passed over their homes uh, but killed the Egyptian firstborn. And it was at that moment that the Egyptians said, well, get out of here. And so they did. The, The sea parted and God took them through and then the sea came back and killed the Egyptians. And so this was a celebration that God is for us and against them. And they celebrated this every year. It was one of their very big celebrations that they had. And so in this final journey to Jerusalem, Jesus, we've already followed this over the last number of weeks, up here, he talks to Peter, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church. He comes down here, he heals a a man that's blind. He comes through here, feeds 5,000, 3,000, 7,000. He walks down here. He's already been baptized in the River Jordan. He's going to hang a ride at Jericho. He's going to come to Bethany uh, and a a place called Bethphage, which is just about a mile outside of Jerusalem. This is a 120-mile walk, and he walks it, and he walks it two, three times a year at least, maybe five right? Uh, it, it's in, by the thousands and thousands of miles Jesus walks. But when he gets a mile away, when he gets one mile away at the Mount of Olives, he does something that he hadn't done ever before that we know of. It's not recorded in any of the gospels before. And this is the actual um, Palm Sunday road. There's Chantel and Richard Sherry Cathcart. This is from our trip in June. Uh, and as you look, you can see the, the temple. We're, we're actually walking down the Palm Sunday road. This temple mount is 37 acres big, Right? So the entire campus of Acts 2 sits on the Temple Mount. It took up a third of Jerusalem at the time. And so here is the Dome of the Rock, one of the holy sites for Muslims today, which is the place where the temple was. 
And so if I was a Jewish temple leader, I could see Jesus line of sight. Jesus could see me. If I was over here with Pilate uh, at the Antonio Fortress, I could see Jesus. Jesus could see me. It was no secret whatever was happening on this road. Everybody in Jerusalem could see it if they wanted to. So Jesus rides in from the east on a donkey from the Mount of Olives. Well, well, wait a minute. He just walked 119 miles. Why is he hopping on a donkey for the last mile? And we're going to get to that. It wasn't because he was tired. He was saying something. He was doing something. Now, this isn't the only parade in town. There's going to be two other parades that week because Rome has to come check it out because Jerusalem for Passover is going to swell to 200,000, maybe 2 million people. And so they need to make sure that anybody who has any thoughts of of causing rebellion or an uprising, they need to to squish that. Now, I don't know if this is what it looked like or sounded like, but in my mind, uh, when Pilate comes to town, it doesn't look like palm branches and hey, hey, hey. It looks more like this. Notice nobody saying, yay, we're glad you're here. Probably minus the orchestra, okay. But, I mean, no palm branches, no save us, no yay. This is the occupying power that has come in to push things down, to put their boot on your neck and to make sure that nothing bad happens during Passover. And from the West, the political power of the time, um, that's going to happen as well. Pilate comes in from the West, from Caesarea uh, Philippi, probably with chariots, horses, all these soldiers. And then from the North, there's Herod Antipas. He's going to come in with political power um, from, from the Jewish side. Uh, and he's going to come in with his guards. And so we have Jesus coming in peace, coming in humbly on a donkey. Everybody loves him. Everybody rolls out for that. At the same time, Rome's coming in from the West uh, with power and might. And nobody's really rolling out for that parade. They're hiding in their homes because they're afraid. And, and Herod's coming in. Now, if you're Pilate or you're Herod, how do you feel about Jesus, who all the people are praising him? I mean, it's on. The table is set. Jesus is in trouble. The powers that be are going to take him out. It's just a matter of time. And there are at least four problems with this story. The first problem is the crowds. The crowds are fickle. They come, they go, they want what they want, and they want Jesus to save them. They want him to be the next David. That's why it's the city of David. He's the son of David. They're like, oh, hey, he's going to slay Rome like David killed Goliath. That's what we expect. That's what we want. And so in the Gospel of John, it says this. When he had said this, um, Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice. He says, Lazarus, come out. This is in the previous chapter. It's the setup. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound strips of cloth. His face was wrapped in cloth. And Jesus says to them, unbind him, let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what Jesus did, and they believed him. They saw, they had never seen somebody raise somebody from the dead, ever. This is the first time in history we know of that somebody's like, boom, and he rises from the dead. People were paying attention. They wanted to see this. And you might say, well, isn't everybody happy about that? No, they're terrified. They're terrified. Because the religious leaders who knew this was going on, they were afraid of Rome. If Rome gets wind of this, it's game over. So some of them go to the Pharisees. These are religious leaders in, in Jewish times. And he told them what he had done, Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council. And they said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place, the temple, and our nation. And the tragedy of this is that they were right. They weren't wrong about it. By 70 AD, Rome is going to come in and and burn the temple to the ground and destroy Israel as they knew it at that time. 
and own them. So, because they're scared to death, this is what fear does, they plan to put Jesus to death. They couldn't handle any more people following him. They had to kill him. Now, if you like action movies like I do, there's always that moment where the hero in the story is willing to die for their cause or the, or the woman is ready to die for her cause. And what do the bad people do whenever they're faced with somebody who's willing to die for what they believe in? Because they can't do anything to them. They can't torture them. They can't kill them. So what do they do? They take hostages, right? So, that, so psychologically, they're going to get them because if you don't care if you die, but you care if your friends die, right? You care if, if the other character that you're in love with dies. Or I mean, you see this in all the superhero movies, right? Well, this is what's going on with Jesus now. Because they're not just going to kill him, they're going to kill his friends. And if you follow the story all the way out, all of the 12 disciples die because they're connected to Jesus, except for John. And John is on the island of Patmos in prison. But basically, if you follow Jesus, your life was on the line. And, and not just his disciples, really anyone associated with them. So when the great crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but they also came to see Lazarus. I mean, this, this, this is amazing because he'd been raised from the dead. They'd never seen that. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews you know, were deserting and were believing in Jesus. Now, you want to feel bad for somebody in the Bible? Feel bad for Lazarus. I mean, he's already dead. Jesus is like, raise him up. And they're like, we're going to kill you again. I mean, that, that is a bad deal. But that's, that's what it says. So, th- so thirdly that, but fourth, there was and is confusion concerning what kind of king Jesus is. It was true then, it's true now. I get really nervous, really nervous when I hear Christians talk about my Jesus, my Savior. He's on my side and against those people. Friends, that's exactly what the Jews were doing. That this was my Jesus, my national hero, and, and not for any of you other people. Friends, Jesus came to blow that up, that he was for all people at all time. And it's still around today. And it certainly it is. If you ever hear yourself say, well, my Jesus and those people, just know you're, you're in a bad spot. Because Jesus is the Savior of the what? The world. The cosmos. Those that didn't even like him. Those that hated him. Those that did not follow him. Jesus is the Savior of all people of all time. But then you have this problem of, of Psalm 118. It, they sang this out. As Jesus came in, they were so caught up in the national frenzy of, of freedom from, from coming out from under Rome that they sang this song that was completely about worshiping a king that had conquered, was victorious. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Say that with me. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now look, that's what it says in the psalm thousands of years earlier. But look what John says. It says, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, save us. There it is again. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, word for word. And then they add the tagline, what? The king of Israel. That's our temptation, isn't it? God says, the world says, that blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord for all people. And we say, the king of Edmund. Or the king of Acts 2, or the king of the United States, or the king of... No, 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 friends. That's not offered to us as much as we might want it. And of course he's the king of Israel, but he's more than that. And he's also your personal savior, confirmants, but he's more than that. He's the savior of the world, the whole world, not just some of it. So this psalm was a song of victory for a returning king going to the temple, which is what Jesus was doing. And the crowd wrongly greeted Jesus as their what kind of hero? national hero. And that's to, that's to miss Jesus completely. 
completely. So the reveal is Jesus' choice and our choice. Are we really going to show who we are? Because when we do, there will be people who don't understand it, and there will be other people who hate it, who absolutely hate it. Because when you follow Jesus, it means you're not following someone else. When you follow Jesus, it means you might not be following someone else, even people in authority from time to time. And then our faith gets hard. So in John 11, in the, in the chapter that precedes the Palm Sunday road, it says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked about how? Openly. You see, friends, Jesus knew that they were going to kill him, and his time wasn't quite yet, so he goes into hiding. He actually gets out of town. He goes to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness. He's going out in the country to stay alive, and so that his followers stay alive. He's in hiding. He's the most wanted man in Jerusalem. And he, he remained there with the disciples. But then what are you supposed to do? If you're faithful and obedient all the way unto death and you're a Jewish person, you have to participate in Passover. The Passover Jew, of the Jews was near. It was time. And many went up from the country, from where Jesus was, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Jesus, as a Jew, must do this. And they were looking for Jesus. They were. They were looking for him. And they were asking one another as they stood in the temple. They're like, what do you think? Is Jesus going to come to the festival? Will he? Well, it's like, surely not. I mean, he's going to get killed. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone, anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might what? Arrest him and kill him. Everybody knew this. Friends, we cannot ever think of Jesus as a victim. He was not. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was God coming from God, here to let us know who God is and how God acts and, and what God is about. And then he returns to God. Never a victim but also fully human. He wasn't play acting on the cross. It really hurt him. He wasn't sweating blood for no reason in the garden. He was worried unto death. And so our question is, will we reveal who we really are in Christ, knowing full well that we will be misunderstood by many and persecuted by some? We will. And, and, and confirmands, when you say yes to Jesus, know that there will be times in your life that other people will hate you for it. They will. They will. Now, not everybody, you'll have lots of love and support. I mean, you, you see this room around you, take a look. You have all this love and support around you, and you're going to need it. You're going to need it. Because the Christian life at times is super fun and easy and church can't be on Thursday night. And other times it's really hard. Really, really hard. Particularly if you're the only Christian in your group. At school or at college or on an athletic field. It can be really tough because they won't understand. So what does Jesus do? Jesus found a young donkey and he sits on it. As it's written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. But here's, here's what we miss, friends. When Jesus chose to stop walking after 119 miles and get on that donkey, it was a death sentence. It was just a matter of time. If you're the most wanted man in a region and there's 200,000 to 2 million people watching, is it smart to be the marshal of a one-man parade? He knew it was coming, but the crowd was so great that they couldn't do anything about it or, or you know, really risk a riot. So he is fulfilling, Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant, victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, a colt. Now here's the thing also that some people will tell you, confirmands and the rest of us. They will say, well, you know, you need to, you need to calm down. You don't need to be a big shot. You don't need to be too big for your britches. Hey, look at Jesus. He can be humble and public at the same time. This is possible. You can be public and humble at the same time. Jesus did it. And we need public leaders who are humble, don't we? 
We need people who can lead, who can be public, who can be out in front, but yet remain humble. It's important. Jesus did it. We're to do the same. You, you may know this. I, this is one of my favorite quotes from Marianne Williamson. She says, our deepest fear, friends, is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? She writes, actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to share and shine as children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us, within us all. It is not just for some. It's for everyone. It's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. As you let your light shine before others, other people at your school or at your work or at your play will be bold enough to let theirs shine as well. But they may never let it shine until you shine yours because they're afraid. They don't want to be the only one. And by the way, that doesn't go away when you're 16. Right? I mean, I know plenty of people in their 40s and 50s are still trying to be cool. You know, they're looking at what other people are doing. Let your light shine, friends. It's what Jesus did. But I want you to look at what Jesus does on the very last night of his life. When we move into chapter 13 on Thursday now of Holy Week, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during the supper, Jesus, knowing full well that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God, got up from the table, he takes off his outer robe and he ties a towel around his waist and then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him now friends this is instructive because um, earlier at his first miracle he took that same bucket of water and he made it wine and some people will say and get stuck at that oh no jesus only works in this one way no 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 at one party, he takes a whole thing of water and he makes it wine at another party another festival at the passover celebration He leaves it water and he washes feet. As the context changes, his ministry changes. So just because you used to do one thing with Jesus when you were 5 or 15 doesn't mean that's what you're going to do at 20 or 25 or 35. It may change dramatically. Still Jesus, still his power, but it moves with the need of the world. Does it make sense? All right. So Jesus washed Judas' feet on the last night of his life. You understand this? Y'all know who Judas is, the one who betrayed him, the one that sold him out, the one that got him killed. And he's at the table. Jesus has John on one side and Judas on the other. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Jesus, I'm like, Judas, why don't you go do what you need to do? And then I'm going to wash the other guy's feet. Right? But that's not what Jesus does. He as the last act before Judas goes and betrays him, he gives him yet another chance. He washes his feet. He serves him. He serves him. The, the most difficult person in his life. And I can't imagine how difficult this would be for Jesus. Because understand, friends, he is fully human. 100% human and 100% God. This was not an easy task for Jesus. It's not an easy task for us. What are we to do? Well, we're to do what Jesus did. After he'd washed their feet, he put on his robe, he returns to the table. And he says this to us and to the disciples. Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. That's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to do what? Wash one another's feet. All right, let's kick off our shoes and start washing feet. I know everybody's like, no, 
No, I'm just teasing. We're not doing that. But how do you do this? I mean, this is, this is the preacher's problem, right? Well, how do you take this text and, and actually ask us to do it? Because Jesus says this. It's, it's not about shoes and socks. He says, I set you a what? An example. That you also should do as I've done to you. Very, very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you what? Do them. Notice it doesn't say you're blessed if you believe them. It doesn't say you're blessed if you study about them in Sunday school or confirmation. It, you're only blessed if you what? Do them. It's an action verb. When you do the life of Christ with Christ's power, that's where the blessing comes. And, and so particularly to the confirmants, I want to say this. You're going to have a public profession today. But it's every day, friends. It's not just this day. This, this is just day one. Every day. All of us are a public profession of Jesus Christ, either for him or against him. Every, every, every single one of us. And so for your action step, friends, I, I want to ask you to do something really, really hard today. And I, and I just want to be honest about it. I don't know that maybe in the next 10 years you'll ever have a moment like Jesus had with Judas. You may not. But you might have it tomorrow. So because, because that's such a huge story, uh, let, let me try to break it down to at least get us started with this. Serve someone who is what? Difficult to love. Difficult to love. You, you may not know this about me, but one of the things I try to do is I try to live out the action step before I ask you to live out the action step. I do my best to never ask you to do something that I'm not doing or haven't done. And so I thought, well, how, wow, how am I going to do this? And I had a lot of people after the last service like, when you did that nice thing for me this week, am I, am I difficult to love? <laughs> like, no, that's not it. So behind our house is about 100 acres um, that we were told wasn't ever going to be developed or not developed in the next 10 years or whatever. About, uh, about six months ago, they started developing it in, in, in mass. It's about, uh, at the closest, about 10 to 15 feet from our bedroom. Uh, and so in the mornings, about 6.45, our house begins to shake with the earth movers. It's completely wiped. Um, and since it, it looks out to the west where the sunset is, and I love sunsets, uh, the entire back of our house is now red uh, with, with that. Um, I hate these people. Uh, we bought the house 10 years ago really for the sunsets only. Uh, the layout doesn't fit us perfectly and blah, blah, blah. So, so the one thing that I love, like everything else is for Chantel inside, mine was a backyard. Everything that I love about the house has been ruined. It's terrible. Terrible people. And so on Friday's our day off. And so I, I sit down in my chair. I face away from the nonsense behind me, going on behind me and the beeping and all that. And there's, there's this huge dually truck that pulls up basically in my backyard. And the next... I see these two guys in my backyard with this huge thing of barbed wire. And I'm like, oh, it's on. Like, what are you doing? So I go out and I check with them. And they're, they're doing their work. And I'm like, dang it. And then Jesus starts talking to me. He's like, well, are you going to do it or not? I'm like, yeah, this is terrible. So I go to the fridge in the garage. And I get a nice cold can of Coke. And I take it to the guy. And I'm like, here. And he'd, he'd, they'd rolled out like four strands of 1,600 feet all the way down to the creek. I mean, they, it was hard work. He'd dri driven in all the way from Wellston trying to take care of his wife and his little kids. And here, Here's what I'm trying to tell you. When I walked back in, I felt differently about those people. I understood them, who they were and what they were about and what they were trying to do. And he's just trying to feed his family, do his thing. He didn't, he's not trying to be hard on me. He's just trying to make a living. So when you serve someone who's difficult to love, it changes you. It can understand it can it can really change you
I invite you, confirmands and everybody else, to think about who God might be calling you to love, who's really difficult. Now, you're going to do that with good, healthy boundaries, of course, but someone who's difficult to love. Amen?